Good morning. This morning's reading is chapter 20 of Genesis. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Sarah, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the white man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you will be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summons all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you? You have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom. You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how we can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech bought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you and who are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech his wife and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Thanks, Neville. So we're back in Genesis. Uh, took a bit of a break over the Christmas period, and well, from last year. And uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 20 through to 25 uh, this term, uh, which will be a really good thing. I'm going to ask God to help us now as we just take a little bit more of a closer look uh, at this Uh, chapter. Gracious Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you particularly for the book of Genesis. Thank you for the way that it details your dealings with uh, your ancient people, uh, including Abraham. Uh, Grant us now uh, your spirit to illumine these words for us, that we might be moved afresh to know you more and to love you more. Uh, as we see you revealed and your goodness revealed in and through uh, these pages. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. If God is totally sovereign and directs everything in our lives 
and in this world by his will, uh, why pray? Some might wonder, why bother praying? God will get what he wants anyway, so what's the point of asking him for anything? Which, of course, is a question that comes from the bigger question of how God's sovereign will and human responsibility are a thing, because they seem to contradict each other. But many believers down through the centuries have rightly seen both God's sovereignty and human free will, responsibility, both affirmed in the Bible, often right next to each other, and they've reconciled it by humbling themselves before God's word and affirming both. A dude called G.K. Chesterton, uh, he once wrote, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. Uh, and I reckon that's a nice quote, but also, uh, some ways, today's passage does this, goes some ways towards this, of furiously underlining God's sovereignty while at the same time furiously highlighting human responsibility. As we see, as we'll see, uh, God's people are saved by grace, God's grace alone, and can pray for God's grace to others. So that's where we're going today. Point one, uh, recap on the book of Genesis so far. Point two, see that uh, God's people are saved by God's grace alone, and as such, point three, they're to pray. To pray for God's grace to others. So point one, uh, Genesis so far. Uh, right from the beginning, the beginning in uh, the book of Genesis, God had a plan. A plan for something good, really good. Uh, and while sin comes in, in chapter three, sin comes in as uh, the man and the woman decide to ignore God's word and do what they like and took that fruit from that tree, sin comes in and it messes the world up with suffering and brokenness and death as God uh, as people, sorry, turn from God uh, to their own ends and suffer his rejection and the punishment of decay and death. Uh, we see, however, that this is not God's heart, nor is it the heart at the heart of his plan for the world. He wants to bless the world more than curse it. He wants to give life more than take it. And so he sets in motion uh, the plan to bless the world and its people. And he does this by making a few promises to a guy called Abraham. Uh, God promises Abraham uh, many descendants, that he would make him into a great nation. Uh, secondly, he promises uh, to give Abraham and his descendants the land, the promised land of Canaan. And in and through these promises, uh, God promises to bless all the nations. Uh, but as we've seen so far, Abraham is a bit of a mixed bag of good and bad when it comes to these promises. Uh, when it comes to the promise, God's promise of the land, at first uh, he hears God say, go to the land I'll show you. He, and so he gets up and he's like, absolutely God, I'm going there. I'm trusting you totally. And off he goes and uh, everyone goes, woohoo, nice one, Abe. Good, good work. But then when he uh, gets a, a little bit uncomfortable in that land <laughs> where uh, God leads him, there's a famine in that land. He doesn't turn to God for help. Uh, he leaves and he goes to Egypt and to Pharaoh for help. But in the process, he gets his wife, Sarah, to pretend to be his sister to save his own skin. Sound familiar? Uh, which gets her in hot water, uh, being taken by Pharaoh into his harem, which ends with God getting cranky at uh, Pharaoh and his court, making them all sick until Pharaoh figures it out. Uh, what's going on? Sends him away uh, with Sarah. It's messy. Because 
well, Abraham's a mixed bag when it comes to God and his promise of, of the land. But he's also a mixed bag when it comes to uh, the promise of many descendants, uh, being a great nation. As God uh, shows him the stars on one occasion and reassures him that he's going to give offspring as many as the stars in the night sky. And we're told at that moment, Abraham, he's looking up and he believes God and amazingly God credits this to him as righteousness. And everyone goes, woohoo, nice one, Abe's. Excellent job. Uh, but then when it's clear that uh, his wife, Sarah, can't have kids, he tries to get ahead of God's promise uh, of many descendants by sleeping with Sarah's servant, Hagar, which just causes a whole world of heartache for Abraham and ultimately for the whole world. So when it comes to trusting God and his promises, Abraham is a bit of a mixed bag. But here's the thing. Even though Abraham is a bit of a faith alloy, you know, running hot and cold, uh, trusting God and putting God's promises in jeopardy time and time again, God only runs hot with Abraham. What he says he does, his word is powerful, and in this, he's 100% faithful to his promises to Abraham. No matter how much Abraham uh, gets it all tied up in knots, God sees a way to straighten it all out. No matter how unfaithful Abraham is, God is faithful and gracious. Indeed, his grace is so undeserved, we, we end up seeing this uh, in this passage. Not just that uh, God, God's people, Abraham, here are saved and blessed by God's grace alone, but how they can't be saved or blessed any other way. So, point two. God's people are saved by God's grace alone. And the thing to note is that in this passage is when God saves and blesses Abraham. It's not in response to anything good Abraham does. He doesn't deserve it at all. He deserves the opposite. But God saves him and blesses him anyway, and it's incredibly while he's sinning. And there's no doubt he's sinning here. Even the godless king, Abimelech, knows Abraham's out of line. Abimelech unwittingly takes a married woman into his harem precisely because Abraham's lied and schemed with Sarah to say uh, that she's his sister, not his wife, so Abimelech rightly has a go at him. We see that in verse 9. You've done things to me that shouldn't be done. Abram sinned here. Fearing people instead of God, instead of trusting God, he's taken things into his own hands, he's trusted his own scheming and lying, uh, and been prepared to sacrifice his wife's reputation and leave her open for abuse, all just to save his own skin. He sinned, right? No doubt. Sinned big time. Everyone knows it. God knows it. Abimelech knows it. Even Abraham knows it. Because when he's confronted, he tries to justify it there. We see in verse 12, Yeah, but she's really my sister. Yeah, I wasn't totally lying. Uh, you ever heard anyone ever say anything like that? Yeah? Well, I didn't lie. I just didn't tell the whole truth. But uh, lies of omission, they can be worse than outright lies because there's no way to assess something is true or not if you don't know it in the first place, right? Like the fact that uh, in the 1980s, the Soviet government knew there was a flaw in the emergency kill switch for their nuclear reactors, uh, but they, they classified that information so nobody on the ground actually knew it, which ended up being a big part of the disaster at Chernobyl the Chernobyl nuclear plant in 1986 as it exploded with the force of four nuclear bombs, uh, killing many and contaminating kilometres of land with radiation for decades. 
if you've got the stomach, watch the recent TV miniseries on the incident. It's a harrowing look at the devastation lies of omission can cause. And this is what Abraham is engaging in here. But he's not only done the wrong thing, he's unrepentantly trying to justify it. He's a sinner in the middle of sinning and yet God still saves him. More than that, he blesses him with land and riches. See that in verse 15. Uh, Abimelech said, my land's before you, live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Now, a thousand silver shekels, that is massive, that's huge. It translates to about 13.6 million bucks. And for what? To cover the offence that Abraham cornered Abimelech into by his lies. Now, look, there's no argument uh, that Abimelech doesn't win any purity contests. Uh, he's got a harem and he's you know, quick to add to it. That's pretty, uh, you know, pretty big sign that he's got a sick, kind of coveting, sexually perverse heart. Abimelech's no saint. Uh, it's a kindness of God that he stops him doing worse than he could have with Sarah and suffering all the more for it. But Abimelech doesn't know God. Abraham does. And rightly, I think we feel that Abraham should know better. And so it's kind of jarring that he, he not only doesn't suffer for his unrepentant sinfulness, but instead that God blesses him, and abundantly. In fact, that, that it seems obscene that God would reward such bad behaviour with blessings. Until you realise that God's blessings here, they haven't got a thing to do with Abraham's worthiness or not. And everything to do with God's grace. Like all his dealings with his chosen people. And so the salvation that he offers people has never nor will will ever have anything uh, to do with whether they deserve it or not. They don't. They never will. It's entirely and utterly by grace. And that, it's precisely in their sin, even as they're committing it, that God gives his grace. We see that here with Abraham. And we see it time and time again with Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, as you go down uh, on to read in the Bible. Down through the centuries, despite their unfaithfulness, God is faithful to them. Despite their sin, he's gracious to them. And just when you think he's run out of patience with them and they're decimated and crippled as a nation in the land, we see God's gracious heart open for them, right open, and for all people, open right up as he steps into their lives in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And with Jesus, we see time and time again, it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable, the undeserving that God doesn't simply have mercy on. In Jesus, he seeks them out. He goes to them. It's who he naturally gravitates towards. He's gracious to sinners. And he hasn't changed. In Jesus, God is still gracious to sinners. It's not like he went to the cross and then rose from the dead with a different attitude towards sinners and stuff-ups. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means in Jesus, God's stance towards us, sinners and stuff-ups, towards you and me, is to love us and to hold us and to bless us, even in our sin, even in the middle of our sinning, 
even as we're lying and covering it up or cheating or stealing or slagging people off or chasing after the things in this world or treating our parents or our friends appallingly or using his name in vain or hating people in our heart or watching porn, even as we know we're doing wrong in these things and maybe making up half-baked excuses for them in Jesus, God's not turning his face from us in disgust. He's not repulsed by us or done with us. He's not dusting off his hands and giving up on us. He wants you. He wants us. His arms are open wide to us. His forgiveness and his love and his mercy and his grace, they are ours. They're yours. Always yours. Because that's who God is. He is gracious and he wants to bless you. He's blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. 13.6 million bucks is an embarrassment next to that. God's people are saved and abundantly blessed entirely and utterly by God's grace. Uh, For the last little bit now, I've been annoying my son Lockie um, to memorise a bit of the Bible. Uh, At some stage during the course of the day, I'll look at him and I'll say, okay, mate, give it to me, Ephesians 2. He'll uh, sometimes roll his eyes, but he'll come round and he'll give it a crack. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What a wonderful part of the Bible to know off by heart. It's worth memorising, because it's crucial to know this, that it's by grace alone that you have been saved. This is crucial for anyone, and everyone to know. If you're undecided when it comes to God, you're not sure about him, where you stand. Maybe because you're worried he's got his arms crossed and he's just frowning at you all the time because he's such a bad, bad person. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, I wouldn't be caught dead in church or it's a miracle I'm here. It's a miracle I didn't burn coming in the, in the doors. But that picture that you have of God, that is a lie. Please see God for who he is. In Jesus, coming to you in all your mess. Not just, not turning up his nose or just putting up with you because he has to, but like a a mother desperate to care for a soiled and crying child. It doesn't matter how dirty that kid is, she'll hug her and kiss her and comfort her and that's who God is in Jesus towards you. And to get that, to get that, that it's by God's grace alone that you are saved, to get that, to know it and to believe it, is to breathe a sigh of relief, safe in God's grace. Because this is just who God is. You see with Abraham? With us. God's people are saved by God's grace alone. That's the second point, which brings us to the uh, third point. Those who are saved by God's grace alone know and cherish it. We're to pray for God's grace for others. Uh, It's interesting that in saving uh, Abimelech from a certain death, God chose to save him through Abraham's prayer. You see that in verse 7. 
where God tells Abimelech in a dream, or it's more a nightmare, uh, now return the man's wife, uh, for he is a prophet, and he'll pray for you, and you will live. But if you don't return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. And then in verse 17, uh, we read, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, did God need Abraham to pray for him to heal Abimelech? Of course not. God doesn't need anyone to ask him to do something to make it possible for him to do it. There's this popular fictional idea that gods are slaves to human faith. You know, the more faith people have in a particular god, the more they pray, for instance, the more powerful that god becomes and then the more that that god can actually do in the world for them. But clearly this isn't how the god of the Bible works, the, the only one true god. He didn't need Abimelech to believe in him, to appear in a dream and frighten the pants off him. And he certainly didn't need people believing in him to stop them conceiving. So why... Abraham praying here. Why pray at all? God is sovereign. He'll get what he wants anyway. So what's the point? What's the point to asking God for things? Why does God want Abraham to pray for Abimelech? Well, surely it's because it's God's way of graciously including Abraham into his plans. And it's got something to do with the fact that he's, he calls him a prophet, there in verse 7, that he is, he's God's mouthpiece. He's been entrusted with God's word. He represents and mediates God's promised word of blessing to the world. He's, he's God's man in the world. Clearly not because he's a good bloke, but because God's graciously chosen him to work with him in seeing his grace come to others by his prayer. And in this, uh, as those entrusted with God's word in Jesus... Abraham, I think, shows us something of what it looks like for God to graciously include us and work with us in seeing his plans work out in the world as we pray for God's grace to others. After all, the Apostle Paul, uh, in the New Testament, he can say this in one of his letters, I urge then that, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. See, God wants all people to be saved, to know his grace in Jesus. And he invites us, he urges us even here through his apostle to pray and intercede for all people so that he might get what he wants, so that people might know his grace and be saved. And in some sense then, like with Abraham, through prayers, God graciously allows what he wants in the world to be susceptible to our prayers. Now, of course, when it comes to people being saved, we don't know who God's chosen in the world to be saved and to know his grace in Jesus. But is it, is it too bold to say that he's deemed to graciously use our prayers in the saving of people? That perhaps there's no one person who knows Jesus or 
who will come to know Jesus, for whom someone hasn't prayed that they would be saved, that they would know Jesus, that by God's grace, chosen before creation and by the prayers of God's people, that God has saved you. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, singing in wonderful harmony as we pray for God's grace to others. It's a thrilling thought, don't you reckon? That God would graciously work in and through our prayers to see people saved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine on the last day? Standing amongst all God's people, millions of people, from every tribe and every language, including those that are yet to be born, and standing there with Jesus and him pointing out to you, each and every one who are there because you prayed for them. Because you prayed that God would heal their hard heart towards him. Because you prayed that they would know Jesus and be saved. Thank <laughs> you. What a thrill. Why would you not want to pray for people to be saved? To pray for your friend or your neighbour or your colleague or your fellow student. To pray that they'd be saved. To pray for those in Vanuatu who will hear the good news of God's grace in Jesus through the efforts of Romanel, as we've heard today. To pray they'd be saved. To, to pray for the people, uh, other link missionaries and link missionary organisations that we support will reach out to. To pray for those in our youth, in our kids' church, in our ESL classes, in our growth groups, in our homes, that they'd be saved. And to keep this kind of prayer front and centre in our prayers because we know how gracious God is in Jesus and how much he wants others to know his grace. Maybe make it a screensaver on your phone every time you turn it on. Pray for someone to be saved. Maybe there's a sticker that you slap on your Bible. Pray for someone to be saved. This is the best and first way forward for us this year, as we talked about last week, to reach out to people with Jesus. It's to pray that they know Jesus and be saved. So, those saved by grace alone, let's never stop praying for God's grace to others. I recently uh, was reading of the Battle of Chester in the uh, early 7th century, as you do, uh, when the uh, pagan Anglo-Saxon king, uh, Athelfrith, and I'm sure I've mispronounced that, uh, invaded Wales. Now, the Welsh, they were Christians, and as King Athelfrith uh, went to fight the Welsh army. He noticed a host of unarmed men uh, amongst them and when he asked who they were, he was told they were a bunch of monks and you know what they were doing? They were praying. They were praying for the success of their army, for the Welsh. And he quickly ordered, attack them first. They did, slaughtered them and he won the day. Even as a pagan, Clearly, Athelfrith had some sense of the power of prayer to affect things in the world. As that other pagan king, Abimelech, many centuries beforehand, as Abraham prayed for him. Who knows how many other unbelievers will come to know the saving power of God's grace because by God's grace, we prayed God's grace for them. So, 
as those saved and blessed by God's grace alone. Let's, let's keep on praying God's saving grace for others. Let's do that together now. And as a lead us, I'll, uh, I'll pause for a, a quiet moment and you can think of somebody to pray that they would be saved. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you for your immense, wonderful, undeserved goodness and grace to us in Jesus. It is incredible. We are humbled and moved by how gracious you are that you have forgiven us, given us your spirit, loved us, continue to love us despite our failings. Thank you that we know It is by your grace alone that we are most definitely saved. And as those who know this, help us to cherish it and to see the immense privilege of being included in your plans and your work of seeing others come to know this grace by praying for them. And so we think of those that you are placing on our hearts now who don't know you and need to know your grace as we do. Please, gracious Father, hear our prayers and save them. Amen.